the Siege of New Hampshire series by Mick Rowland. Book 5, Critical Spring. Epilogue With having read the last chapter of Book 5, we come to the end of what I've published so far of the Siege of New Hampshire series. I say so far because as of this podcast at the end of December 2023, I'm currently writing the sixth book in the series. As much as I had imagined that book five was the end of the story, I also realized that I thought that about book three and four. Readers wanted to know more about what happened to Susan. Well, fine, I thought. I'll write a fourth book showing that Susan had found a new home, someplace safe to live, and that she was becoming a person much more able to take care of herself, that her fans didn't need to worry about her. Eh, but that wasn't enough. Readers didn't feel like book four was an ending either. And, looking back, eh, I could see they had a point. I had thought that having Susan say at the end of book four, what's wrong with five corners, that it would suggest that she was content to stay. Eh, no. I hadn't really resolved the triangle so much as I had merely put it on pause. Susan still had her desire to return to Cheshire. Her fans were asking if she ever made it back. Thus the seeds of Book 5 were born. Yeah, that's kind of a weird metaphor. Seeds aren't born. Well, never mind. While thinking of how I might use Book 5 to actually solve the triangle, I realized that I could also use the book to tie up some loose plot threads from earlier in the stories. For instance, a couple of readers had asked whatever happened to Candace after she was exposed as the village quizzling in Book 3. I decided to be kind to the Candace character and have her reformed. I had her mischief in Books 2 and 3 as motivated more out of a misplaced effort to help and a naive trust in government, rather than some innate malice that probably couldn't be reformed. So I let her resurface with a plausible background in herbal medicine as a way that she could satisfy her desire to help the community and uh, stay out of trouble. And then, speaking of villains, what about that Quinn guy? Jack Quinn, FEMA assistant vice subdirector or whatever his title was. I'd have to look it up, but I don't want to. He had been a sort of background nemesis in the story. His machinations instigated some of the big troubles the people of Cheshire faced, such as arming and advising the Azule's gang, arming and supplying the former prisoners of Badass who attacked the town near the end of Book 3. His intel gathering was what directed the little napalm planes and decided the raiders as targets. I couldn't very well just leave Quinn out there stirring up trouble unchecked. So I devised a plot thread to resolve his fate, he was more motivated by ego and malice, so I didn't mind arranging his doom. I kind of liked leaving his fate a bit mysterious, though, with no solid closure. There's something about evil that is never completely defeated. Then, too, I felt like I had left the folks of Camp Wanamaker kind of hanging. You'll recall that in the middle of Book 4, they had to suddenly bug out, abandoning their underground homes at the summer camp, running for the New Hampshire border with the Fed soldiers hot on their heels. Whatever happened to them? I had, in my mind, figured that they had escaped the soldiers once inside New Hampshire, but then what? They fled, but they had nowhere to flee to. It was a kind of large-scale version of that individual prepper scenario in which, once the poop hits the fan, the stalwart prepper 
dons his bug-out bag and heads for the woods. Ah, but then what? The Camp Wanamaker folks wouldn't be a single prepper guy, but a big group. Where would they go? The inhabitants of southern New Hampshire wouldn't want a group of refugees taking up residence in their backwoods. So I had Byron and his people continue to migrate north and east until they got to Monadnock State Park. That wasn't anybody else's backyard. That was all just in my mind, though. I'd never written it out. But when the story for Book 5 was taking shape and I was going to have Martin travel west to get some medicine for Margaret, it was just too good of an opportunity to pass up. Martin would encounter the Wanamaker folks, and a bit of their backstory could be told. And it didn't matter if Martin knew who they were. You readers would. And then there was Susan's PTSD from her assault. That was a big part of her story in Book 4, but I felt bad just leaving her there. Broken. Her desire to help Martin would give her a motivation to fight her demons instead of running from them. While she wouldn't be cured by that one defiant stand, I mean, PTSD isn't that easy to conquer, it would at least suggest that she could find victory. But that same motivation that gave her the strength to overcome her demons came from the same sort of feelings that would forbid her to return. Ah, uh, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Well, to hopefully resolve the triangle, both Susan and Martin needed to voluntarily choose separate paths and not seeking each other. I gave them both their own Mephistopheles of sorts. Susan had Aaron talking to her about romance novel notions and one true love, of heroes rescuing damsels, etc. That would help Susan see her feelings in a more realistic light. Martin would naturally be more focused on his wife, but he too would have a Mephistopheles whispering about soulmates and cosmic plasma. This too would push Martin into more mature thinking. At the end, Susan would discover sacrificial love. This is what the Greeks called agape. It's what Jesus referred to in John 13:15 when he said, There was no greater love than that where someone lays down their life for another. Parents, especially mothers, understand that sort of love for their children. And adults can experience it, too. Perhaps it's less common these days, what with the culture constantly preaching to us about how everyone is supposed to be looking out for number one, getting something for themselves out of whatever. Such modern relationships usually distill down to just mutual benefit agreements. As long as both parties are getting something out of it, they stay together. But if one of them stops getting whatever, then the relationship is over. With Susan realizing that she needed to sacrifice her dream for Martin's happiness, she was voluntarily breaking the triangle. With Martin so focused on his wife, he didn't have time to entertain silly notions of soulmates. I'd like to think that Book 5 settled the triangle, but my track record on that sort of thing isn't too strong. I guess we'll see. A topic explored in Book 5 was the problem of disease, injury, and infections in a social collapse scenario. Much of our modern medical system is built upon layers and layers of industrialized society. Stable power to run pharmaceutical factories making drugs and medical supplies. A stable and prosperous enough society to be able to afford the luxury of universities and hospitals training doctors and nurses. If everyone is working 12 hours a day to grow enough food to survive, 
who would have 12 years to devote to medical school and internships. Back just over a hundred years ago, medical care wasn't all that effective. The fact that bacteria caused many of the illnesses wasn't understood until the mid to late 1800s. Viruses weren't discovered until 1890. Until the germ theory prevailed, people thought disease was carried by bad air, miasma. Even the name of the disease malaria means bad air. Back then, a whole bunch of conditions that are treatable today were serious or deadly. Diarrhea, diphtheria, whooping cough, scarlet fevers, enteritis, smallpox, tuberculosis, dysentery, cholera, measles. Most treatments back then were feeble, if not completely ineffective. A treatment for cholera, for instance, was to prescribe bleeding off 12 to 20 ounces of blood from the patient. They thought the bleeding would relieve some internal pressure or something. Since cholera is actually a bacterial infection in the intestines, bleeding did no good at all, and probably only made things worse. But to continue to take cholera as an example, it's caused by a bacterium, Vibrio cholerae, sorry about my Latin, that lives on the hard shells of seafood species like clams and shrimp. People can get infected from eating undercooked or uncooked shellfish or drinking seawater with the bacteria in it. If it gets a sufficient toehold in a person's intestines, it produces a toxin that induces profuse diarrhea. This often has the result of flushing away competing bacteria in the gut, leaving the cholera germs more of an open field to colonize. The diarrhea sometimes was so severe that the infected person could die of dehydration complications within just hours of the first symptoms. All that diarrhea spread more of the germs. Caregivers handling the soiled bedding or clothing spread the germs. Poor sanitation practices meant that wastewater found its way into the local drinking water supply, quickly spreading the disease to a whole village. You can see where, absent of understanding about germs, that people would get the idea that it was bad air that caused the disease. I mean, it struck so quickly. In the early 1800s, cholera epidemics sprang up all around the world. It started in India in what might have been a local epidemic, but with increased global travel, this was the era of colonial empires after all, the disease spread to Asia, Europe, and America. Hundreds of thousands died of it. We don't hear much about cholera anymore, mostly because industrialized nations have improved sanitation measures. But if we were to experience a grid-down scenario, as I portrayed in the siege stories, many of those sanitation mechanisms would go offline. We could see the return of cholera, especially in more crowded areas where wastewater and drinking water get too close. For the story in Book 5, I wanted to have Margaret get sick to the point where Martin had to focus all of his attention on helping her. Margaret couldn't get cholera, despite that being a pretty likely thing to happen. Many people recover from cholera through just oral hydration, drinking lots of fluids with electrolytes like sugar and salt in the water. More severe cases can be treated with IV saline solutions, all that to replace the fluids lost to diarrhea, thereby preventing the more serious organ failures due to dehydration. No, if Margaret had contracted cholera, it would have been bad but not totally demanding on Martin's time. I consulted with a nurse friend of mine, asking about a disease that might be fatal if not treated, but curable with proper medicines. She suggested MRSA, 
It's potentially deadly, but treatable, though only with some very specific antibiotics, and a full recovery is possible. This was perfect, uh, sorry, Margaret, as it would put Martin through a quest to find the three medicines in time. Of course, his quest wouldn't be simple or quick. After a collapse of the usual pharmaceutical industrial system, there would be almost no new drugs being manufactured. People in the collapsed society would only have whatever drugs were on the shelf, so to speak. That would be a limited and quickly dwindling supply. That's a problem we could potentially face if our current industrialized system fails us. Drugs we take for granted, even simple things like aspirin, would get harder and harder to find. Some natural alternatives, like willow bark to replace aspirin, for instance, are possible, but herbals don't tend to be quite as effective. Routine ailments or injuries would become a much bigger deal, like they were in the early 1800s. That scenario is what I used as the setting and the mechanism to help break the triangle. Martin needed to be too focused on saving his wife to pine after vague feelings about soulmates. Susan would discover sacrificial love in her desire to help. Was it enough to put the triangle to rest? Yeah, who knows? I've been wrong about that rather often. I was wrong about Book 5 being such a conclusive ending. It didn't take too long after getting Book 5 done for readers to ask, what happened next? Well, that was logical enough. I ended Book 5 with Martin plowing his back acres so he could plant the beans that Susan gave him. Since growing food isn't as simple as Mr. Bloomberg thinks, there could be a story in how the folks of Cheshire fare during their growing season. But, to be honest, growing crops is not all that exciting. Now, what's that old quip about something being boring? It was like watching grass grow. Martin and the folks in Cheshire would need something else going on, so I dug through my story ideas file. I try to write down ideas for plot bits when they occur to me. I usually don't know that I'll use them once I write them down, but if they seemed useful as a tidbit or perhaps a subplot or something, eh, they went in the file. With the setting of Book 5 being Cheshire during the summer and the growing season, some of those bits fit. Some totally really didn't. But it was enough to get the outline started. I began writing actual text, not just outlining, the chapters of Book 6 in January of 2023. I've shared these with my patrons on Patreon and my Siege Club members on Buy Me a Coffee, so they already know where the story is going. As of this episode, I'm not done writing book six. But I did wonder what we were going to do for podcast episodes when I got to the end of book five. I got the idea to start narrating what I did have written for book six, but I knew I'd run out of written material pretty quickly. I mean, I can narrate a whole lot faster than I can write new chapters. So I thought that maybe I would post a chapter of book six every other Friday. But rather than leave you with nothing, on those in-between Fridays, I thought I would use those in-between episodes to take a wider look at the prepper fiction genre, which the Siege series is part of. For instance, book one of the Siege series is a get-home story, but there's a lot of get-home stories out there. Most are more famous than mine. What did they have in common? How was my book one different? Did the other stories give the readers some useful prepper advice or insight? What lessons did the readers get? There are other topics to explore, too, like the notion of people trying to survive in a collapsed world, or visions of what a collapsed world might look like. 
Some of them are way out there, like Mad Max. Some are super pessimistic, like the book and movie On the Beach. Others are more optimistic. I'm still trying to flesh out what those in-between episodes might be, so I can't really leak any spoilers, because I don't really know myself. Still, I hope you'll find the topics interesting. But before all that begins, I need to take a couple of weeks off to drive out to the Midwest to see my daughter and my newest grandson, who's supposed to be born on December 31st. There's other family to visit, too, out there in the old country. Almost every day is going to involve long hours of driving, so there won't be much time for podcasting. Well, but then who knows? Adventures sometimes happen, and smartphones are also audio recorders, so we'll see. So. Until next time, I hope you all have a safe and happy New Year, and thanks for listening.